The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. For some, it may be hard to believe there are still places that exist in the world where people don't give a second thought to leaving their doors unlocked. Small, safe, secure communities where the possibility of crime is the farthest thing from anyone's mind. 20-year-old Molly Tibbetts lived in such a place, the tight-knit farm community of Brooklyn, Iowa. But on a cool evening in the summer of July 2018, that was about to change. Join me now as we take a look into the devastating disappearance of Molly Tibbetts and the desperate search that captivated America's heartland. You'll learn about the horrific events that shattered a small town's secure self-image and ignited a national controversy. Interstate 80 runs directly through the heartland of the United States, a nearly 3,000-mile-long road connecting New York City to San Francisco. Heading west across the Mississippi River, travelers entering Iowa are met with green slow-rolling hills and never-ending fields of corn and soybeans. Approximately 90% of all the land in the state is dedicated to farming, and almost every station on the AM radio dial provides daily agricultural updates about the weather, livestock, and grain prices. About 70 miles east of Des Moines, off exit 197, sits the rural farm town of Brooklyn. It's one of the innumerable small communities dotting the landscape along the interstate, whose prominent buildings are churches and grain silos. Idyllic small-town America. In this part of the country, Almost every farmer relies solely on Mother Nature to water the crops, so it's understandable why a small town has four churches for just 1,400 residents. It's the kind of place where faith and livelihood are forever intertwined. On Wednesday, July 18, 2018, it was sunny and hot throughout central Iowa. The mercury in Brooklyn read 82 degrees, but oppressive humidity made it feel closer to 90. The month of July had been extremely dry, but a recent weekend storm produced much-needed rainfall, and the thirsty crops were noticeably reinvigorated. Nitrogen coursing up from the soil turned the head-high fields of corn a darker shade of green. Within a month, the cornfields of Brooklyn would stand over 10 feet tall, producing the highest yields the county had seen in decades. On the western edge of town, 20-year-old Molly Tibbetts was house-sitting for her boyfriend Dalton and his older brother Blake, who were both out of town for the week. Blake had two dogs, including one with epilepsy, that Molly agreed to take care of while they were away. Throughout the summer, she'd been splitting her time between Dalton's house and her childhood home where her mother still lived, just a mile down the road, keeping various clothing and belongings at both places. She wasn't overly concerned about getting settled in anywhere because she was heading back to the University of Iowa to start her sophomore year. Around 7.30 p.m., just an hour before sunset, Molly decided to take advantage of the cooler temperature and go for a run. She put on a pair of multicolored neon running shoes, black jogging shorts, and a pink sports top before popping in wireless earbuds and placing her gold iPhone 7 into a runner's armband pocket. Hitting the pavement, Molly headed east through town. Running had always been a part of Molly's life after joining the school's cross-country team. She was never one of the fastest runners on the track, in fact, whenever her family asked about her races, she was more likely to talk about new friends she'd met at the meet than about her race times. After finishing long runs at cross-country practice, she'd always immediately turn around 
and continue running alongside the last runner on the course to help them across the finish line. When Molly went for a run, she had a few standard routes she liked to take. Her Fitbit tracked her progress, logging her routes and times with GPS. Depending on the day and her mood, she'd choose which way to take, some shorter, some much longer. On that particular day, Molly decided to go on a long run, a simple six-mile out-and-back route she'd jogged countless times before. As she headed east through town, her 10-minute-mile pacing carried her past tree-lined rows of rural two-story homes, just blocks away from the home John Wayne grew up in. It's remarkably fitting that an actor who embodied the spirit of the American frontier would spend his boyhood in a town like this. Just before Molly reached the edge of town, a black Chevy Malibu passed her on the road. She'd never seen the driver before, but instinctively smiled and waved as he went by. Typical small-town pleasantries. Being outgoing and welcoming, even to strangers, was built into Molly's character. She had a natural gift of making anyone feel like the most important person in the room. And perhaps the main reason she decided to study psychology in college. She wanted to help people. And Molly's friends, family, and teachers were all convinced she would change people's lives. As Molly rounded a corner, she followed 385th Avenue, running east out of town, into pure farm country. A stretch of paved road commonly referred to as the blacktop by locals, being one of the only non-gravel roads outside of Brooklyn. There's no soft shoulder on the blacktop, meaning passing cars had to cross the center line to get around Molly safely. That is, if there was a painted center line. About two miles into the run, just before 8 p.m., Christina Stewart carefully passed Molly on the road. She recognized her right away, noticing that Molly had her hair pulled together in a low ponytail. As one of the local hairdressers, it's the first thing Christina always notices about most people. She'd cut Molly's hair a few times and remembered when Molly's family first moved into town. It's not every day a family moves from San Francisco to Brooklyn, Iowa. Molly was born and raised on the outskirts of Oakland, California, in the Bay Area, with her two brothers, Jake and Scott. But in 2007, her parents, Laura and Rob, divorced, and Laura moved with her children to Iowa when Molly was in the second grade. The change of scenery was stark and precisely what Laura was hoping for. Endless acres for her children to wander and a school close enough for them to walk to. Despite the distance, Molly's father Rob maintained a close relationship with his children. When he later remarried in June 2018, Molly insisted on being his best man, giving the toast, calling her father her best friend. After Christina passed Molly, Molly continued running down the final straight stretch of road that led to her halfway point where she'd typically turn around. Behind her, a car approached and slowed as it stopped along the road. Suddenly, the driver exited his vehicle and jogged up beside Molly. It was the driver of the black Chevy Malibu who noticed her earlier. Molly was usually kind and accepting of strangers, but something was off about the 25-year-old trying to keep up with her. Something just didn't feel right. That's when she pulled out her iPhone and threatened to call the police. But that didn't stop the man from running beside her. Instead, it angered him. Suddenly, he lunged toward her and grabbed her. Trying to break free, Molly began screaming. And then, everything went black. In 2015, Molly had started dating Dalton Jack after meeting at a football game during his senior year. He was the team's starting fullback, and as soon as he began talking to Molly, the two were lost in their own little world. On July 19, 2018, Dalton woke up in a motel room in Dubuque, Iowa, 120 miles east of Brooklyn. 
As a road construction worker, his job often required driving long distances and spending multiple nights in motels. He had sent Molly a text message around 5.30 in the morning, saying good morning beautiful, just before heading off to the job site on a bridge spanning the Mississippi River. Around midday, the weather turned sour and began to rain, shutting down construction for the rest of the day. Exhausted from working consecutive 12-hour shifts, Dalton returned to his motel and took a nap. As he slept, the skies west of Brooklyn turned an ominous shade of gray as a string of supercell thunderstorms tore across the eastern expanse of Tornado Alley. Around 4.30, a series of violent tornadoes ripped through the area, touching down within 25 miles of Brooklyn destroying nearby Marshalltown and Pella areas with winds over 144 miles per hour. Around the time of the storm, Dalton was startled from his nap by a disturbing phone call from Emily Fenner, one of Molly's co-workers. During the summer, Molly worked at a daycare center in the neighboring town of Grinnell, but when she never arrived for a shift at 8.30 that morning, Emily grew concerned. Not only did Molly not show up, she hadn't called in either, something remarkably out of character for her. Emily then called Dalton, wanting to know if he might know where she was. She also sent him a text asking, Dalt, is Molly alive? Dalton immediately called Molly's phone, but didn't get an answer. He then called friends and family to see if they knew where she was. After a couple of hours trying unsuccessfully to track her down, Dalton asked his boss if he could leave and go back to Brooklyn. He was worried and wanted to look for Molly. By the time Dalton reached his home, it was already after dark, and word of Molly's disappearance had spread through the small town like wildfire. As he pulled into his driveway, a crowd of family and friends were gathered as an officer took statements from them. Dalton's brother Blake had also returned from a work trip, and the two brothers spent the night driving around looking for Molly, but there was no sign of her. It was like she disappeared without a trace. Blake wondered if she'd maybe been hurt by one of those tornadoes. Over the next few days, hundreds of local volunteers conducted organized searches, along with the Iowa Department of Criminal Investigations. Law enforcement officials and hundreds of others have devoted countless hours to the investigation. The Powasheet County Sheriff's Office has dedicated every available deputy to assist in the investigation and searches. Since being requested by the Sheriff's Office, the DCI has dedicated many agents and analysts from across the state to help with all aspects of the of the investigation. The FBI has also committed many agents from a number of their field offices to assist with this investigation and continue to do so. More than a dozen local agencies have also volunteered their time and talent um, to assist with this investigation, which include um, fire and EMS responders as well as members of the community. As leads continue to come in, they are constantly evaluated, prioritized, and followed up on. Missing person cases can be some of the most difficult and demanding investigations. We've appreciated the assistance from many local, state, and federal agencies, along with the assistance from the public that have provided every resource they can. To date, we've provided every investigative resource that the investigative, the investigative team has asked for. We are not giving up on any possible leads and hope that we can find Molly Tibbetts soon. Many in the public were quick to assume the boyfriend did it. But on July 25th, Sheriff Tom Kriegel publicly announced Dalton Jack had been cleared as a suspect to quell rumors and rampant speculation. But as the days dragged on and July turned into August, there was still no sign of Molly. Hello everybody, thanks for coming today. On July 19th, 2018, 20-year-old Molly Tibbetts of Brooklyn, Iowa was reported missing by her family. She was last seen on July 18th at approximately 7.30 p.m. while running the city streets of Brooklyn. Her last known articles of clothing are believed to be dark colored running shorts, a pink sports top, and running shoes color unknown. 
Since July 19th, law enforcement and volunteers have searched tirelessly for Molly. On any given day, uh, upwards of 30 to 40 investigators are working on this case. Thus far, in excess of 200 leads have been followed up on. Searches have included ground air and the utilization of canines. Investigators continue to work this case aggressively and seek the public's support by contacting the established tip lines if they have information related to Molly's disappearance. Rewards to Crime Stoppers in Central Iowa is offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in the case or the discovery of Molly Tibbetts. The TIP Rural Electric Cooperative in Brooklyn has agreed to match that reward for a total of $2,000. And I'd like to thank the media for helping us get the word out and helping us find Molly Tibbetts. With the announcement of Molly's reward fund, donations began flooding in from around the country. At an August 3rd press conference, Molly's family, including her father Rob, pleaded with the public for any information. Um, first of all, I want to thank you all for taking time out of your busy schedules to be with us here today on Molly's behalf. Um, second, I want to thank the um, from the collective souls of all of Molly's family and friends, the efforts that have put, been put in from the people in this town, in this county, in this state, in this country, and across the world. We appreciate every act that has been bestowed upon us. We believe that Molly is still alive, and if someone has abducted her, we are pleading with you to please release her. We are partnering with Crime Stoppers of Central Iowa to help facilitate the process of receiving information anonymously. That we can use to pay for her release or information that would lead to her location. As of 10 o'clock this morning, uh, we have raised $172,000 that would be paid to you as soon as Molly is safely home. Rob, can you tell us, this is your daughter, she's been missing since July 18th. Can you tell us how the family is holding up? The family's holding up just fine. We're setting our personal feelings aside. This is a fight for our daughter. And so we have all the tools that we can use, and I want to thank the media for coming here and helping us to share this story because we are told very little by the authorities for very good reason. They are incredible partners. They've put together an incredible investigation. It's large, it's sophisticated, it's aggressive, and they have been nothing but sensitive to our family. And to suggest otherwise is wrong. But they are not sharing information with us because they don't need to share information with someone who might be implicated in this. The other part is you, the media. You've been wonderful. You've taken us, our story national and international, and to keep this story in the public conscience is essential because this is gonna be solved by someone coming forward with information, either information that they think is trivial and not worth sharing, or information they think is going to implicate a loved one or a friend and they're afraid of doing that. And I've been telling all of you, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. So come forward, share that information with the authorities, and let's bring Molly home. After the press conference, donations continued pouring in and the reward money for Molly's return ballooned to nearly $400,000 making it the single most significant reward in Central Iowa's Crime Stoppers' 36-year history. The media did their part keeping Molly's story in the public consciousness. Her disappearance dominated regional news coverage. Posters, magnets, buttons, and flyers with Molly's face blanketed the state of Iowa. Everyone was looking for Molly. In modern-day missing person cases, social media is truly a double-edged sword. The good part is obvious. Never in the history of law enforcement has it been easier to raise awareness and get information out to the public. The downside is equally apparent and much darker. Unverified claims pour into online forums from web sleuths and armchair detectives. Speculation based on limited information becomes the norm and innocent people's reputations are tarnished. 
as their personal lives are pried open and investigated. As the search for Molly reached its fourth week, police remained extremely tight-lipped, releasing very little information into their ongoing investigation. While we are reluctant to discuss all the investigative leads and details of this case, as well as the methods, we will utilize every technology and all available resources in this investigation. By this time, Molly had been missing for 27 days, and it was no secret how much time, money, and resources were being spent looking for her. Many of the people outside of Brooklyn began grumbling about the lack of progress and information, but what people couldn't see was the tireless systematic approach going on behind the scenes. Every lead, no matter how small, being chased down and completely exhausted. Nearly 4,000 individual tips were being provided to law enforcement, almost all red herrings. Shortly after the press conference on August 14th, Agent Trent Roletta of the Iowa DCI was on the verge of breaking the case wide open, although he didn't know it at the time. So what we do when we have a case like this, we do what we call canvassing. So we go to each house, um, kind of start uh, possible, maybe a run route for Molly and go to those houses and then we expand out. In the course of our canvas, one of the things we always look for is locations for cameras on the house, on the uh, garages, on the businesses. The world is heavily video recorded now, so we usually have luck in finding quite a bit of camera footage. Inside DCI's temporary headquarters at the Brooklyn Fire Department, agents had a giant map of the town pinned to the wall showing every single residence in Brooklyn. Households already spoken to were marked in red, while homes still needing to be interviewed were marked in yellow. Agent Derek Reason was sent to one of the homes marked in yellow, a home belonging to Brooklyn resident Logan Collins. When he reached the home, he noticed security cameras positioned around the house and asked Logan if they could view the footage. Although detectives had access to Molly's Fitbit data, her last run, the one that mattered, had never been saved and uploaded to the cloud. Instead, detectives poured over Molly's old roots, developing a theory for where she most likely ran the night she disappeared, making Logan's security footage crucial to their investigation. Well, we had Fitbit data um, that showed previous run routes, and we knew uh, through the Fitbit data that that would be a route that she would often take. So based on our knowledge of knowing when, you know, what time of day she normally runs and then uh, what time we know she was probably abducted, we were able to um, guess, I guess, a route, possible route um, through, that, through those cameras. The security footage from Logan's house proved to be a gold mine. He had four surveillance cameras set up around his home, pointing in each direction, to the north, south, east and west. The footage was stored on a one terabyte hard drive and saved for 30 days before being automatically erased. DCI found the footage from July 18th, just three days before it would have been gone forever. Agent Reason assigned officers to examine the footage as they worked throughout the night and into the following day, looking for any sign of Molly. We didn't notice anything while reviewing them on August 14th on August 15th I was reviewing the cameras um, specifically one area that was kind of hard to see um, but after looking and being around the, the town of Brooklyn to get the 385th there was really only two areas where you could access that road by pavement so the common areas that would have went right past Mr. Logan's house East Des Moines Street we didn't find her there so on the 15th, um, I spent considerable time looking at the area of Boundary and the end of East Des Moines, which is hard to see on the cameras. While I'm reviewing it, Agent George, he came up and he had asked me what I was looking at. As I'm reviewing the cameras, I show him what I'm looking for. I turned actually to say something to him and he said, I think I saw something there. I thought he was kidding at first, but I uh, went back on the cameras and then sure enough, we saw 
what looked to be like a jogger going through that, that frame. The specter of a jogger is nearly impossible to see on the camera footage. A grainy, ghost-like image, far in the background, appears for just a couple of frames between buildings. Literally, blink and you'll miss it. The fact detectives even noticed Molly on the video is somewhat of a miracle. From the footage, detectives didn't know precisely what they had. It was impossible to tell if it was Molly, or whether the image on the screen was even a man or a woman. But they believed they could make out what appeared to be a low ponytail. After 28 days of continuous, grueling, and tenacious detective work, they had their first solid lead in the disappearance of Molly Tibbetts. Essentially, what we decided to do was to start logging every, everything we saw on the video. Vehicles, any pedestrians, anything in and around that area prior to 7.45 and also following 7.45 p.m. as shown on the uh, time and date stamp. While reviewing it, um, what we did, once again, we took this and after we had located the runner, we once again parceled it out to different agents and deputies to review and each created like a written log of just notes on what they had seen. So what was seen was once again cars, person walking their dog, I, I recall, um, but most of it was uh, vehicles. The, the big thing for me was when those four individuals who were viewing tape gave me their logs, I created a spreadsheet just on Excel and with time and date according to the timestamp. And after the runner went past at 7.45.33, the next four entries in that log, once I compiled it, were a black Chevy Malibu. So it was just someone we really felt we needed to identify whoever the driver was of that vehicle to see if they saw something, if they uh, knew who Molly was or passed them or whatever. We just wanted to know who was driving that vehicle. The footage on Logan Collins' cameras broke open the case for us. It was the, the uh, lead that we needed. Um, it provided not only the uh, Black Malibu, but it also had a very brief glimpse of Molly Tibbetts jogging. With nothing else to grasp, locating the Black Chevy Malibu and its driver became top priority for law enforcement. Details of the car were given to sheriff's deputies, and on August 16th, Deputy Steve Keevy spotted the vehicle. Initially, when that information was passed on from the officers reviewing the video, it was described as a black Chevy Malibu, model year 2008 to 2012, with chrome mirror covers and chrome door handles. So that's kind of what we were looking for. I remember seeing the clips. I don't think it was until the next day that, or later that I saw the clips, but that's the kind of vehicle that I was looking for. I was driving north on Highway 63 and I was going underneath the Interstate 80 overpass. And as I, as I went under the overpass, I saw a black Chevy Malibu with chrome mirror covers at the stop sign at the Be The Westbound off-ramp. Caught my eye and um, I, I drove past it and then I pulled over on the shoulder to see where it was going to go because I wanted to identify that vehicle and driver. The vehicle turned north onto Highway 63 so it would have driven past me. I caught the license plate as it did. I ran it through our dispatch center and I began to follow the Malibu north on Highway 63. I learned that the vehicle was registered to a female from Tama. As we drove into Malcolm, which is less, less than a mile from Interstate 80, the vehicle turned west onto 2nd Street, so I followed it. Then it turned north into an alley and I lost sight of it for a second, but I, as I turned north into the alley, I saw that it was parked. So I parked in the alley, I got out, and the driver was already out of the vehicle. So I said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And he turned around and um, I tried to communicate with him. It became pretty obvious quickly that he didn't speak English, um, but there happened to be some el older gentleman in a yard nearby that walked over and said he could help us communicate. I asked him, uh, if he had any identification, he showed me a document as a, a birth certificate that gave his name as uh, Christian Bahina Rivera and his birth date. I asked him, I asked him, is, is this you? And he said, yes. 
He said he had heard that there was a girl missing from Brooklyn, but didn't have any knowledge that would be useful to us. Christian was born in El Guayabio, a small town of 400 residents located in the southern state of Guerrero, Mexico. Despite being only 90 miles from the tourist paradise of Acapulco, El Guayabia is rural, made up mostly of poor farmers. His father, mother, and two sisters lived together in a one-room house made of dirt and cement with a tiled floor. Two curtains that could be drawn were the only semblance of privacy within the household. The kitchen contained only what was absolutely necessary for cooking, and the family got by on his father's meager income, 1,500 pesos per week, about 75 U.S. dollars. At 17, Christian decided to relocate to the U.S. and join other family members already living there. After paying a coyote at the Texas border, Christian crossed the Rio Grande in an inflatable raft with 10 others. He then walked around the immigration checkpoints before entering the U.S. illegally. Within days, Christian made his way up to central Iowa to meet up with relatives. The teenager quickly settled in and began working at dairy farms, sending back $800 a month to his family in Mexico, more than double what his father was earning. His goal was to send them enough money so they could build a proper home. In 2018, Christian was 24 and working as a farmhand at Yarraby Farms outside of Brooklyn. The hours he worked were difficult for most to imagine, 12-hour shifts, 7 days a week. He averaged 72 hours per week at $12.60 an hour, and whenever he did have a weekend off, he looked after his three-year-old daughter. Although he'd split with his daughter's mother, the two remained amicable, and she described Christian as a wonderful father, and never once showing an ounce of anger or violence. But there was one thing that constantly lingered in the back of Christian's mind as he tried to make a life for himself in Iowa, avoiding law enforcement. For seven years, he'd done a miraculous job of it, being careful, taking back roads whenever he could, never once getting pulled over for even a speeding ticket. He knew if he did, he'd most likely get deported back to Mexico. Getting pulled over on August 16th by Deputy Kivi was his first interaction with U.S. law enforcement since arriving in the U.S. At this point in the investigation, detectives were stumped. All they had was surveillance footage of a car driving around Brooklyn shortly after Molly jogged by, and the driver claiming he didn't remember seeing her that day. In fact, claimed to have only seen her on the news. But after a few days, something still wasn't sitting right with detectives, and they decided to talk to Christian again on August 20th. Uh, we went to his place of employment at Yerby Farms, to do a, I guess you'd call it a focused canvas, to gain a little more information about him and the car and who else might be associated with him in the car. At the end of that, at the end of that canvas, uh, he was taken to the sheriff's office for an interview. There was no way detectives could have known at the time that a routine interview would turn into an 11-hour interrogation marathon. At first, Christian claimed to have no knowledge of what had happened to Molly. But when the interviewer showed him photos from the surveillance cameras, his story started to change. I laid them out in front of him, the three pictures together. He looked at them and his response was, yes, that is my car. I asked him if he was driving the vehicle that date and time. He said, yes, that was me. I asked him, is anyone else in the car with you at that time and that particular date? He goes, no, it was just me. It was impossible to identify the gender of the ghostly image of the jogger in the photo shown to Christian, yet he used the word she. That's when Pamela really began to sense Christian knew more than he'd been letting on. I pointed out to the person that was running, and that's what I told Mr. Rivera. You see this person that is running? He said, yes, she was running. He went on describing that it was a female um, girl running. Mr. Rivera told me that he saw her three times. He saw her first, turn around, came back. He stated that she even waved at him and smiled. 
and then he went back and that is when he continued doing what he was doing at that time. He stated that he was trying to find his way around town, that he was heading to his uncle's residence to obtain a vacuum cleaner. The way that Mr. Rivera described that um, first um, sight of the female was, it was in a paved road near a curb. I asked her what he thought of the female runner first, and he, his answer was, uh, I found her attractive. He stated at one point that she, he thought that she was hot. I asked him what she was wearing. He said black shirts, maybe a top sport bra, and he continued describing. He did not say the name of it, but he just said one of those things that you put on to measure your steps or to hold yourself on. As Christian continued to be interrogated into the early morning hours, he slowly but surely began revealing more information. I asked Mr. Rivera to give me all the details that he could remember since he um, approached Molly Tibbet. He told me he um, saw her running um, again three times. One of those times he parked his car behind her, ran after her or jogged after her, came um, close to her that she noticed him. She turns around, makes the attempt to use his cell phone to call the police. At this point, Mr. Rivera um, told me that he got angry and that that is when they started fighting. He said that Molly tried to slap him and was um, screaming at him. So once Mr. Rivera told me that he got um, angry and he remembered them starting fighting, he stated that usually when he became, becomes angry or when he gets mad, he blocks out. So the next thing that he told me was that um, he remember him driving and looking down into his legs and finding the earbuds that belonged to Molly. And that is when he remembered that he had Molly in the back of his vehicle in the trunk. On August 21st at 4.30 a.m., Christian and Pamela, escorted by other police officers, drove the gravel backcountry roads east of Brooklyn. It was still an hour before sunrise as they pulled into a small turnoff at a cornfield near Guernsey, about 15 miles southeast of Brooklyn. Sitting there in the patrol car, in pre-dawn light, Christian told Pamela they were at the location where he'd hid Molly's body on July 18th. He remembers that there was blood. He told me that he took her out of the car, put her on top of his shoulder, carry her inside into the cornfield, laying her down, covering her with corn leaves, and leaving right away. About 500 feet off the road in a cornfield, detectives discovered Molly's body, just as Christian had described it. A pair of multicolored neon running shoes poked out beneath a pile of corn stalks. A short distance from Molly's body, they also found her running shorts and underwear. 34 days after her disappearance, the search for Molly Tibbetts was finally over. A first-degree murder charge was filed today in connection with the disappearance of Molly Tibbetts, who was last seen jogging in Brooklyn, Iowa on July 18, 2018. A complaint and affidavit names Christian Bahina Rivera, age 24, who resides in rural Powersheet County, and he has been charged with murder. Christian continued to claim he had no memory of killing Molly, maintaining he blacked out. But the autopsy revealed what Christian couldn't or wouldn't. Molly had been stabbed at least nine times in her chest, back, neck, and skull. The discovery of Molly's body made national headlines, with Christian's status as an undocumented worker sparking a media firestorm. The same day Molly's body was discovered, President Trump began using the case as a talking point for revisiting immigration law. The overwhelming amount of political discussion in the aftermath caused Molly's father Rob to pen an editorial in the Des Moines Register newspaper, stating that, Molly was nobody's victim, nor is she a pawn in others' debate. 
allow us to grieve in privacy and with dignity, and at long last, show some decency. On behalf of my family and Molly's memory, I'm imploring you to stop. Over the next few years, Christian's trial was delayed and rescheduled multiple times, the last delay resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. But on May 17, 2021, the trial finally began in Davenport, Iowa. Although Christian had never specifically confessed to killing Molly and a murder weapon was never found, the state's prosecutors presented what seemed like a bulletproof case against him. He admits taking Molly's body out of the trunk. He admits seeing blood on Molly's body and neck. He admits putting Molly over his shoulder. He described the body as someone who had fainted. He admitted taking Molly into the field, placing her face up, and putting corn stalks on her body, and then leaving. The defendant's vehicle was searched, the Chevy Malibu, and blood was found on the trunk liner and in the trunk. Analysis was done of that blood, DNA analysis, and it was matched to the DNA taken from the body. It was Molly's blood in the defendant's Chevy Malibu. Christian's defense lawyers did their best to raise doubts about the thoroughness of the police investigation, attempting to cast suspicion on other possible suspects, including a very aggressive cross-examination of Dalton Jack, Molly's boyfriend. Dalton came across as extremely evasive, only remembering information if the defense was able to produce documented proof through his texts or conversation. Mr. Jack, you recall on July 6, 2018, 12 days prior to Molly's disappearance, having a conversation with her via text message indicating to her that you were madder than f for no reason? I do not recall that conversation. If I showed you a text message a report of that, would it refresh your recollection? Yes. You're a smart guy, right? I'm not going to stroke my own ego here, but sure. Yeah, you, in some of the interviews, said to agents that you had your college paid for because your ACT scores were so high, right? Yes. How high were they? Sustained. Is there anything wrong with your memory, organically? No. You don't have any illness? I've had multiple concussions. Okay, is that affecting your memory, do you think? I don't know, no. Okay. Has any doctor diagnosed you with any reason that you can't recall things? No. Okay. The exchange was tense, bordering on hostile, as the defense presented Dalton and Molly's relationship as much rockier than anyone might have suspected. With Dalton having cheated on her and caught a month before her disappearance, messaging the same woman. You recall the Snapchat message conversation with Jordan Lamb where you told her you wanted to get with her? No, I do not. You don't recall saying to Jordan Lamb that if you do get together with her that you had to be quiet because you weren't going to jail because she was under 18? I've got to object. There's no time frame that's put on this that's not relevant at this point. But no matter how badly Dalton's character was assassinated, he still had an alibi. He was 120 miles away, and there wasn't a single piece of evidence to contradict that fact. But nothing could have prepared the courtroom for what Christian was about to say when he took the stand. So you get the vacuum, and then where do you go? To my house. When you get to your house, what do you do? I realized that the sun was still very strong. It was too strong to clean my car, so I decided to go in and take a shower. Approximately what time did you take a shower at your home? About 6, 6.30. After you took a shower, uh, what did you do? I left the bathroom. What did you see? Two people in my living room. Christian told the courtroom the two men were masked and forced them at gunpoint to drive them around town. 
That's when he claimed they drove past Molly as she was running outside of town. After forcing Christian to pull over, he said one of the men then exited the car with a knife and ran after Molly. Around 10 minutes later, he said the man came back to the car and had Christian drive them to the spot where Molly had been stabbed. Next, he said they opened the trunk, placed her body inside, and then told him to drive to a remote area next to a cornfield. They told Christian that if he told anybody, they'd kill his three-year-old and the child's mother. The men then got out of the car and walked away, leaving Christian sitting alone in his car with Molly's dead body in his trunk. If he went to police, he said he feared the men would kill the two people he cared about the most, not to mention being an undocumented immigrant. So he did the only thing he thought he could do. He opened the trunk, picked up Molly, and carried her into the cornfield, then drove off and kept his mouth shut. Christian's account seemed unbelievable, but the defense pointed to the presence of two unidentified persons' DNA being found with Molly's blood in the trunk of his car to corroborate his story. On May 28th, the legal teams presented closing arguments. Sometimes she would go a short distance, sometimes she would go a little bit longer. But on July 18th of 2018, she went for that run that was a little bit longer. She was confronted by this man. She crossed paths with him and it ended her life. She was stabbed repeatedly by him. Can you imagine what that was like for her? Her clothing was removed. She was dumped into a cornfield, discarded under a pile of corn. The defense was up next. We're not going to suggest to you that Christian Bahena's Rivera's Malibu was on that video. That was him. He testified to that. You saw him on the stand. Or that was him driving that car. We'll give you that. Absolutely was him. He said that Miss Tibbetts' blood was in Christian's Malibu, in the trunk. That's true, too. We aren't going to dispute that at all. He didn't mention to you that there was a mixture of blood in the trunk. What is missing in this case? That's really what you got to look at. After nearly eight hours of deliberation, the jury reached its verdict. We, the jury, find the defendant... Christian Behina Rivera, guilty of the crime of murder in the first degree. Christian was scheduled for a sentencing on July 17, 2021. That is until a major twist to the case was announced just two days prior. Two new witnesses had come forward, causing the judge to delay Christian's sentencing. One witness was an inmate at a county jail when he claimed he overheard another fellow inmate confessing to murdering Molly and then framing Christian. The second witness asserted she was riding in a car with the same man who confessed to murdering Molly in jail, who also told her he was the one responsible for raping and killing Molly. A new hearing is set to be scheduled to determine whether or not Christian will receive a new trial before sentencing, dragging out closure for Molly's grieving family even longer. During a murder trial, it's not uncommon for victims to have their lives thoroughly examined by police, the press, and a jury. All their flaws and intimate details exposed for the world to see. But one astounding aspect evident throughout Molly's case was just how genuinely innocent she truly was. Investigators who pored over the contents of her phone said they found perhaps the nicest text messages they'd ever read. Although Molly's father pleaded with the media not to make his daughter out to be a saint, it was impossible to hide the fact that she was indeed an exceptional human being. Molly isn't all that more different than your daughters or your sisters or your girlfriend. She's just a wonderful, normal, terrific person. And we all can identify with that. 
And I don't know that I have the strength of me, but Molly's lending me her strength every day, every night. And yes, I have my moments of complete meltdowns, but it is um, through this strength that is somehow, and I don't know how, being bestowed upon me that I am able to get through every morning, every noon, every night. And now I would like to introduce you to the podcast, Crime and Entertainment. I am Hollywood Wade. And I'm Jaeger Yancey Tetter. And we're inviting you to join in each and every week as we host the Crime and Entertainment Podcast. Now this is available everywhere you get your podcast from. So what sets us apart from other crime podcasts? Well, glad you asked. It's the high quality entertainment part of our name. Now, they've always told me I've had a face for radio. Mm-hmm. And on this one, I tend to agree with the people. And we've got entertaining stories from the people who are actually involved with the case, like actor Lilo Brancato Jr., a star of A Bronx Tale, when he was telling us a little bit about working with the late, great James Gandolfini. I remember when we were done, we gave, the most memorable moment was when, you know, he gave me a hug and told me that I was really, really, really good. And you could see he meant it. He right. said that was really good. And I mean, I remember already realized how great he was. So pour your favorite drink and have a laugh or three with the Crime and Entertainment Podcast, available wherever you get your podcast. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to 